Chapter 1 Strict Liability Underscore 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 Contents 1. Introduction. 1 2. 3 Policy Ideas Behind Strict Liability. 1 3. An Overview of the Strict Liability Paradigms. 3 4. Rylands v. Fletcher. 5 5. Paradigm ATI, Accidental Trespassery Invasion. 8 6. Paradigm UA, Ultra Hazardous Activity. 11 7. Paradigm CU, Common Usage. 18 8. Paradigm MU, Mutual Use. 23 9. Paradigm VMS, Vis Major and Sabotage. 24.10. Paradigm PPR, Plaintiff Participated in Risk. 27.11. Paradigm A, Unforeseeable Harm. 28.12. Paradigm HNR, Harm from Non-Ultra-Hazardous Risk. 30.13. Paradigm NLPA, Neither Strict Liability Paradigm Applies. 31.14. Conclusion. 33 further reading 35 underscore 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 one introduction once it exists strict liability is the simplest tort many people think much of the original law of tort embodied strict liability but this is probably an overstatement. In the early cases in which strict liability applied, juries usually possessed the ability to absolve defendants by finding them not guilty. That same type of liability, which is not fully strict, continues today embedded in the tort of negligence. A surgeon who leaves a sponge in her patient is theoretically liable for negligence, but a jury can forgive the error. The modern tort of strict liability is in any event stricter than the modern tort of negligence mainly because modern strict liability is usually adjudicated by judges who do not forgive violations, whereas negligence is almost always adjudicated by juries, which sometimes forgive negligence. Two three policy ideas behind strict liability here are three policy purposes underlying strict liability. Copyright 2019 Mark F. Grady 2 Strict Liability CH11 Get actors to consider thoroughly whether they want to do an activity at all, how much of it to do, and how much precaution to use doing it. Strict liability induces more precaution than the negligence rule. This purpose is especially important when juries might be inclined to forgive negligence as in Raynham Chemical Works, Limited v. Belvedere Fish Quanoco, Infra at P12, where the courts held a government munitions manufacturer strictly liable for a factory explosion even when its weapons-producing activities were necessary to fight World War I for the British. Because this defendant's work was so important to the national fate, a jury might have forgiven the explosion and thereby weakened the company's safety incentives. Two don't have strict liability when victims possess excellent precaution opportunities of their own against the risk of an activity. Under the negligence rule, Victims cannot count on injurers being negligent, as odd as this seems, so harm that is non-negligent but still the result of the defendant's activity can leave an incentive on victims to use precaution. 
Strict liability is the opposite because it makes the defendant an insurer of the risk created by an activity, it makes injurers liable for non-negligent as well as negligent harm. Especially in cases of property losses, strict liability disincentivizes victim precaution because victims can always get compensation from the injurer. This comprehensive liability can leave victims with little incentive to use their own precaution against the activity's risks. That is probably why strict liability hardly ever applies where victims possess good precautions against the risk in question. Where victims don't have any precautions they can use against the risk, it makes it easier to apply strict liability. 3. Protect the enjoyment of private land from invasions. The oldest part of strict liability is about preventing dangerous physical incursions that accidentally come from the neighborhood. The courts could directly apply these policy ideas, but assessing which way they tilt in individual cases would create a murky legal rule. Definite and well-defined rules promote the settlement of legal claims, uncertain rules promote trials and appeals, which can be very costly for both the government and the parties. Basing legal rules on technical ideas, not policy ideas, creates legal certainty and settlement. The technical ideas often appear arbitrary, but they have hard edges that are a real advantage. Technical rules and concepts reflect policy choices and are always subject to change when the courts can identify a more refined or additional technical rule that better advances their underlying policies. Courts do not always know the relevant policy ideas until the evolution of a rule is substantially completed. The cases teach judges ch1 strict liability 3 what policies are important. Even with well-evolved bodies of law, many judges may be unable to identify the relevant policy ideas. Over the course of a centuries-long evolution, many judges may have lost track of what the objective was in the first place. The law's use of technical ideas makes the job of judge more widely available. Indeed, the policy ideas mentioned by judges in their opinions tend to be tautologies, for instance, the purpose of tort law is to compensate injuries. How is this purpose served in the many cases in which someone hurts someone else, but no tort liability exists? No one has a perfect window on the common law's purposes, there are only competing positive theories, and these should be falsifiable, not tautological. For instance, the theory that strict liability fails to apply when victims have good opportunities to use precaution is a falsifiable theory, which can be falsified through an examination of the cases in which strict liability does and does not apply. As we will see, this theory is not falsified by such an examination, but instead supported. In sum, the paradigms presented in this book are defined in terms of technical ideas. Courts use technical ideas to create the liability they want, and they alter these technical ideas when they don't get the liability they want. 3. An overview of the strict liability paradigms When we think of strict liability the biggest legal and policy issues relate to when strict liability applies. The normal rule for accidental harms is negligence. Strict liability applies to a small subset of accidents. Two themes can be discerned in the technical markers of strict liability. The first from an historical point of view is the technical idea of the defendant's accidental and significant invasion of the plaintiff's real property. This is the theme begun by the leading English precedent of Rylands v. Fletcher won a case in which the defendant's newly constructed reservoir failed and flooded the plaintiff's coal mine. Fortunately, 
the mine was empty of workers, and only property damage occurred. The second theme is ultra-hazardous activity, a later technical concept first developed by the authors of the restatement, first, of towards point two an ultra-hazardous activity produces a large risk even after everyone has used reasonable precaution. 1 Fletcher v. Rylands, 159 ENG Republic 737, EXCH 1865, Revd, LR1 EX265, EXCHCH 1866, AFD, Rylands v. Fletcher, LR3 HL 330, 1868. 2 Restatement, first, of Torts 520, 1938, provided as follows, 520 Definition of ultra-hazardous activity An activity is ultra-hazardous if it for strict liability CH1 Table 2-1, strict liability paradigms liability no liability ATI, accidental trespassery invasion, CU, common usage, MU, mutual use, VMS, vis major and sabotage, PPR, plaintiff participated in risk, UA, ultra-hazardous activity, A, uh, unforeseeable harm, HNR, harm from non-ultra-hazardous risk, NLPA, neither liability paradigm. Applies, in the modern era the two technical concepts of when strict liability applies have to some extent merged, with the ultra-hazardous activity idea becoming more important. The English legal historian Brian Simpson described a series of colossal reservoir failures in the early Victorian period that created great loss of life, sometimes in the middle of the night. He argued that the English people of this era came to see large reservoirs as ominous threats, much the same way as modern people look at nuclear reactors. Simpson argued that the two themes accidental trespassery invasions and ultra-hazardous activities had a common origin, because at the time of the Rylands v. Fletcher case in the mid-1860s English people regarded reservoirs as ultra-hazardous three despite Simpson's claim, in the decades immediately following Rylands v. Fletcher English and American courts applied strict liability to activities that were obviously not ultra-hazardous, but were otherwise like bursting reservoirs in that they accidentally created some kind of trespass to land. In the modern era, however, the ultra-hazardous activity paradigm seems to eclipse, a, necessarily involves a risk of serious harm to the person, land, or chattels of others which cannot be eliminated by the exercise of the utmost care, and, b, is not a matter of common usage. 3 AWB Simpson, Legal Liability for Bursting Reservoirs, The Historical Context of Rylands v. Fletcher, 13J Legal Stud, 209264, 1984. CH1 Strict Liability 5 The Accidental Invasion Theme, Paradigm ATI. Increasingly, a bursting and invading reservoir will be subject to strict liability only if it was ultra-hazardous. Possibly because legal evolution in this area has been so complex, with Paradigm UA slowly eclipsing Paradigm ATI, the courts have evolved multiple no-liability paradigms, as Table 2-1 also indicates. These no-liability paradigms all apply to accidental trespasses as well to ultra-hazardous activities. For Rylands v. Fletcher Rylands v. Fletcher was decided by the English courts in the 1860s. 
the defendants had hired an independent contractor to build a reservoir that they intended to use to provide water power to a nearby factory. One of the defendants owned the land on which the reservoir was built, and the other defendant owned the factory that was going to receive the water power, transferred by moving leather belts driving mechanical gears, not by electricity. As they were building, the independent contractors noticed old mine shafts in the area, but they took no special precautions against them, nor did they inform the defendants of them. Instead, they just kept building the reservoir in the usual way, which was negligence on their part because of the obvious possibility that leaking water might invade the coal mines still operating in the neighborhood. As soon as the reservoir was filled with water brought to the location by horse and wagon, the bottom of the reservoir broke and flooded the plaintiff's mine. Luckily, no miners were at work at the time, but the plaintiff incurred considerable expense to get the water out of his mine. It was for that damage that he sued. The case was tried to arbitrators, who found that the defendants, who were the reservoir owners, had not been negligent. The legal issue was whether the defendants could still be liable despite this finding. The Court of Exchequer found that the plaintiffs could not recover for but this decision was soon reversed by on appeal to the Court of Exchequer Chamber.5 based on three prior precedent cases, Justice Blackburn found the true rule to be that the person who for his own purposes brings on his lands and collects and keeps there anything likely to do mischief if it escapes, must keep it in at his peril, and, if he does not do so, is prima facie answerable for all the damage which is the natural consequence of its escape. He added that the defendant could excuse himself by showing that the escape was owing to the plaintiff's default, or 4 159 ENG Republic 737, EXCH 1865. 5 LR 1 EX 265, EXCH CH 1866. 6 Strict liability CH1 Perhaps that the escape was the consequence of this major, or the act of God, but said he did not need to consider these complications because nothing of this sort exists here. None of his three precedents was named in Blackburn's opinion, but they can readily be identified. The first was T. He person whose grass or corn is eaten down by the escaping cattle of his neighbor. Cattle trespass had long been a tort of strict liability. Point six. This type of case was adequately described by Justice Blackburn's true rule because a rancher collects cattle, which can escape across the property line and eat the neighboring farmer's crops, thus doing mischief. Blackburn's second precedent case, although again unnamed, can be easily identified as Tenant v. Goldwyn. Point seven. This was a case in which the defendant maintained in his basement a cesspit for his toilet which leaked through his basement wall into the plaintiff's basement next door thus wrecking the plaintiff's beer. Again, Blackburn argued, something mischievous had escaped across a property line, and case resulted in liability. The last example was the homeowner whose habitation is made unhealthy by the fumes and noisome vapors of his neighbor's alkali works. This precedent case was very much in the news at the time Rylance was decided because the Leblanc process for creating soda ash had recently become widespread in England. Point eight, the process directly involved the release of hydrogen chloride gas into the atmosphere and indirectly to the release of a second toxic gas, hydrogen sulfide, which is the odor of rotten eggs. This industrial innovation led to the first air pollution statute, the Alkali Act of 1863, 
enacted just three years before the Blackburn's opinion. Point nine, even before that statute, however, and 1839 6C, for example, the later case of Ellis v. Loftus Iron Co., 1874, LR 10 CP 10, strict liability for a horse that, away from highway, stuck teeth through fence and bit another horse, which reflects the early English rule. 791 ENG Republic 314, KB 1705. 8 CAE Dingle, the monster nuisance of all, landowners, alkali manufacturers and air pollution, 1828, 35 Econ. History Revelation, NS, 529548, 1982. 9CID. Here is how Blackburn summarized this precedent, some years ago several actions were brought against the occupiers of some alkali works at Liverpool for the damage alleged to be caused by the chlorine fumes of their works. The defendants proved that they at great expense erected contrivances by which the fumes of chlorine were condensed, and sold as muriatic acid, and they called a great body of scientific evidence to prove that this apparatus was so perfect that no fumes possibly could escape from the defendants' chimneys. On this evidence it was pressed upon the jury that the plaintiff's damage must have been due to some of the numerous other chimneys in the neighborhood, the jury, however, being satisfied that the mischief was CH1 strict liability 7 English precedent maintained that alkali works emitting such gases constituted nuisances for which the liability was effectively strict. Again, the defendant had collected harmful gases on its property, and these escaped to the plaintiff's property, doing mischief there. Blackburn effectively argued that the case of the bursting reservoir was sufficiently analogous to cattle trespass, cesspits leaking across property lines, and polluting alkali works, to justify the same rule of strict liability for all of them. The defendants' counsel had cited two cases in which courts had previously applied the rule of negligence to two somewhat similar escapes. Ten these were Scott v. London. Co. 11 and Hammack v. White. 12 in Scott a bale of cotton fell from the defendants' warehouse onto the plaintiff's head. In Hammack defendants' newly acquired horse without forewarning jumped from the street onto a London sidewalk and killed the plaintiff's deceased. Both were decided for the defendants on the grounds that neither defendant had been negligent. They were odd precedents for Blackburn to pick because no one argued in either case that strict liability should rule. Instead, defendants' counsel in Rylands had cited them for the proposition that negligence was the generally accepted rule of liability in most escape cases. Occasioned by chlorine, drew the conclusion that it had escaped from the defendants' works somehow, and in each case found for the plaintiff. No attempt was made to disturb these verdicts on the ground that the defendants had taken every precaution which prudence or skill could suggest to keep those fumes in, and that they could not be responsible unless negligence were shown, yet, if the law be as laid down by the majority of the Court of Exchequer, it would have been a very obvious defense. If it had been raised, the answer would probably have been that the uniform course of pleading in actions on such nuisances is to say that the defendant caused the noisome vapors to arise on his premises, and suffered them to come on the plaintiffs, without stating there was any want of care or skill in the defendant, and that the case of Tenant v. Goldwyn shewed that this was founded on the general rule of law, that he whose stuff it is must keep it that it may not trespass. There is no difference in this respect between chlorine and water, both will, if they escape, do damage, the one by scorching, 
and the other by drowning, and he who brings them there must at his peril see that they do not escape and do that mischief. LR1EX265, 28586, EXCHCH1866. Thus, for Blackburn, Tennant v. Goldwyn, the cattle trespass cases, and the alkali works cases were the key precedents for the court's decision in Rylands v. Fletcher. 10 LR1EX265, 27475, EXCHCH1866. 11142 ENG Republic 926, CP1862. 12 Scott v. London and St. Catherine Doxco, 159 ENG Republic 665, EXCHCH 1865. 8 Strict Liability CH15. Paradigm ATI, Accidental Trespassery Invasion, as Justice Blackburn stated his true rule, for a defendant to be strictly liable something should escape, and this something should have been first collected by the defendant on his land, and it should be something that will likely do mischief, likely do harm, if it should escape. We know from his discussion of distinguishable cases that an eligible escape is not a horse that escapes from the street onto a sidewalk or a cotton bale that escapes from a warehouse, and so forth. Judging from his other citations, the kind of escape he had in mind was one that crossed the property line between the defendant's property, where the collected material was present, and the plaintiff's property to which it escaped, as in Rylands itself and the other cases Blackburn said fell under the same legal rule. To look at the escape from the plaintiff's point of view, it seems to be a trespassery invasion and a large invasion if we are thinking of the thousands of gallons of water that crossed the property line in the actual Rylands case. Note how technically Blackburn defined his rule. The true rule speaks of collection, escape, and mischief. What policies was the court trying to advance with these technical concepts? It doesn't say. Let's focus on the technical nature of the rule. If we compare the facts of the distinguished cases, the horse jumping on the sidewalk, and the covered cases, the cattle wandering next door, the nature of the property line crossed seems key. It must be admitted in Rylands that the property line crossed by the water was not the common law's most basic. That would be the property line between two ordinary pieces of property. In Rylands, the water passed from the defendant's surface property to the plaintiff's subsurface property. It appears this was enough of a property line because the waters crossing it created strict liability. In Hammack v. White, the horse crossed no similar property line when he jumped from the street to the sidewalk. The same was true when the bale of cotton fell from the defendant's land and warehouse onto the street or alley on which the plaintiff was walking. As time passed, the nature of the property line crossed became less important, though many courts continued to hold that for strict liability to apply there still needed to some type of escape of material from the defendant's land, again as in Rylands v. Fletcher. After all, even in the original case, the property line crossed was not the most basic known to the common law, is the property line between two surface tracts. Here are some case examples of paradigm ATI, accidental trespassery invasion, which were modeled after the most basic feature of Rylands, that something mischievous and dangerous CH1 strict liability 9 escaped from the defendant's property and did damage because of the escape. 
in Shipley v. 50 Associates 13 a case decided by the Massachusetts Supreme Court in 1869, the year after Rylands v. Fletcher, the defendant had designed his roof in such a way that accumulated snow would tumble off it onto the public sidewalk below. The plaintiff was inundated and injured when a huge quantity of it fell onto the plaintiff as she was walking past the defendant's premises. The court applied strict liability by analogy to Rylands. The property line crossed was simply the line between the defendant's fee simple and the public sidewalk, which may have been a public easement in which the defendant still owned the underlying land. There was no discussion in this case whether the building's design was ultra-hazardous. This case was factually like both Hammack v. White, the jumping horse case, and Scott v. London Dockco, the falling cotton bale case, which Blackburn cited as non-strict liability cases. Shipley, a strict liability case, limited those two cases and extended Rylands v. Fletcher. The most obvious distinction between Shipley and Hammack is that there was more of a collection of material in Shipley as compared to Hammack. In Shipley the defendant collected snow on his land, whereas in Hammack the defendant did not collect, but simply rode his horse down the street. Scott and Shipley were very similar because there was a collection by the defendant in both cases and escapes onto public sidewalks. Yet, Shipley was strict liability and Scott fell under the negligence rule. Perhaps the distinction was the Shipley escape was more inevitable. Because of the roof design, snow would inevitably fall onto the sidewalk, whereas reasonable care by the warehouse owner would keep the bale of cotton in. Thus, Shipley was more of an ultra-hazard than Scott, so perhaps in comparing the two cases we see the first glimmering of the ultra-hazard theory. Shipley was also more like Rylands in that in both cases it was an escape of water, frozen water in Shipley, liquid water in Rylands. Cotton is not water. Technical similarities often guide decisions when a body of law is new. The courts want to make sure of their early steps, and maintaining technical similarities is a good way to do so. A similar American case was Davis v. Niagara Falls Tower Co. 14 a case decided by the New York Court of Appeals in 1902, when Rylands was a little over 30 years old. The defendant had built a hotel and 13101 Massachusetts 251, 1869, defendant liable under Rylands v. Fletcher and nuisance law when its roof, designed so that snow would fall onto sidewalk, dump large quantity of snow onto plaintiff as she walked on sidewalk. 1464 NE4, NY 1902. 10 Strict Liability CH1 Observation Tower next to Niagara Falls. Once the tower was built, it became apparent that spray from the falls would congeal on the ironwork and then in a thaw fall onto the plaintiff's museum next door, which had large skylights that the falling ice would break. The court did not cite to Rylands, but heavily relied on Shipley, the Massachusetts case just mentioned, which did cite prominently to Rylands. In any event, the court found the defendant strictly liable. Both Davis and Shipley entailed inevitable escapes of frozen water, like Rylands which entailed an escape of liquid water. Davis was more obvious for strict liability because the water crossed a hard property line, between two tracts of land not just a crossing of the line between the defendant's tract of land and a public easement or sidewalk. Also, the Davis escape was more inevitable than the Shipley escape. You can clean snow off a roof to prevent it from falling, 
but you can't clean ice off a high tower. In addition, falling ice from a high tower is even more dangerous, more of an ultra hazard, than falling snow from a roof. Thus again, Davis was a clearer application than Shipley of the new strict liability rule. Both Shipley and Davis fell within Paradigm ATI because they both involved accumulations of water in different forms which escaped their property onto the plaintiff's property and did damage there. The two American cases extended Rylands and Paradigm ATI because in both the collection of the dangerous material was far less intentional by the respective defendants than was the collection in Rylands. Nevertheless, all three cases involved accumulations of water that accidentally escaped and did harm, therefore, both fell squarely within Paradigm ATI, accidental trespassery invasion. Although the original idea of Paradigm ATI was an accidental escape of water across a property line, early English cases suggested that bursting pipes did not fall within the same rule. In Carstairs v Taylor 15 decided in 1871, an English court held that when a small box collecting rainwater broke and damaged the plaintiff's rice this accident failed to yield strict liability. The court gave some stress to the fact that the rain box was very small, but more stress to the fact that the box operated for the plaintiff's benefit as well as the defendant's benefit. It was a mutual use of the water system that failed, paradigm mu. Similarly, in Rickards v Lothian 16 when a trespasser sabotaged a water system in a commercial building and flooded the plaintiff's premises, the court stressed that it was a normal water 15 LR6 EX217, 1871. 161913 AC 263, PC Austral 1913. CH1 Strict Liability 11, System as well as other facts. In W.H. Smith & Son, Limited v. Daw 17 the court refused to apply strict liability to a bursting sewage pipe. These were common usages, Paradigm CU. The English law of leaking pipes finally became clear in 2003 with the decision of Transco PLC v Stockport Metropolitan Borough Council 18 by the House of Lords. A water pipe supplying a public housing apartment building leaked, and the water percolated to undermine the supports of the plaintiff's nearby gas line, necessitating costly repairs. The plaintiff sued under Rylands v Fletcher, but the law lords held that it was unavailable because the pipe in question was not that much larger than a normal household water pipe, which finally settled the matter. This normal pipe that burst fell under Paradigm CU, common usage. A route that dumped large amounts of snow on the adjacent sidewalk was neither a mutual use of the plaintiff and the defendant, nor was it a common usage. Similarly, the Davis Observation Tower was not a common usage at the time, but an extraordinarily high tower, neither was the tower in mutual use by the tower company and the plaintiff museum next door. If the tower had involved a partnership between the tower company and the next door museum, probably the court would have declined strict liability under the Carstairs v Taylor mutual use precedent. 6 Paradigm UA, Ultra-Hazardous Activity, the second major paradigm of strict liability is ultra-hazardous activity. This paradigm creates liability when the defendant's activity created a large amount of risk that reasonable care does not eliminate. Point 19 in Sullivan v. Dunham 20 Annie E. Harton, who was 19 years old, was hit by a tree as she was walking along a public road near the village of Irvington in Westchester County. 
Two of the defendants had been employed by the third defendant, Dunham, who owned a piece of land, to remove certain trees standing upon it. On the south side of the tract, about 300 feet from the nearest point of the highway in question, there was a large living elm tree, 60 to 70 feet in height, between the tree and the highway were some woodlands. The defendants put dynamite under the roots of this tree and ignited it, shattering the tree and throwing a section of the stump over the intervening forest, 412 feet, to the point on the highway where the 17 CA March 31, 1987, on pub. 18-2004-2 AC1, HL-2003. 19 Restatement, 3rd, of Torts, Physics. And Emote. Harm 20, 2010, has adopted this formulation, adding that the activity must not be a matter of common usage. 2055 NE 923, NY 1900. 12 Strict Liability CH1 Plaintiff's Intestate was traveling. She was struck by it with such force as to cause her death within a few hours. The trial court instructed the jury that the plaintiff did not have to show negligence on the defendant's part in order to recover. The jury returned a verdict for the plaintiff, and the defendants appealed. The New York Court of Appeals affirmed the plaintiff's judgment. In Raynham Chemical Works, Limited v. Belvedere Fish Guanoco 21 The plaintiff sued for damage to their property from an explosion coming from the defendant's munitions factory. During World War I, the defendants Feldman and Partridge acquired patents for making high explosive in a novel way. They then obtained contracts from the British government and acquired the lease of land upon which a factory was built. They organized a limited liability company, the Raynham Chemical Works, in which they were the principal directors and shareholders. Nevertheless, at the time of the explosion, the two individual defendants were still the landlords of this new company. On September 14, 1916, right at the Great War, an explosion occurred at the defendant's factory, causing loss of life and serious damage to adjoining property. Some of the premises so damaged were owned by the plaintiffs, the Belvedere Fish Guanoco, and related persons, who brought the suit to recover for their loss. The plaintiffs originally sued only the limited liability company, but when it appeared that this company was insolvent and that the individual defendants were still leasing the company land, the plaintiff sued these major two stock owners as joint defendants. Lord Justice Scruton tried the case without a jury and found all defendants liable under the rule of Rylands v. Fletcher. The defendants ultimately appealed to the House of Lords, which also affirmed the plaintiff's judgment on their strict liability theory. Besides falling under Paradigm UA, ultra-hazardous activity, the case also involved an accidental trespassery invasion under Paradigm ATI. This case seems to limit the idea expressed in von v. Tafvale that parliamentary approval is a good measure of natural use or common usage. The British government was an effective partner of the dangerous enterprise because it was purchasing all the output for its key project, winning World War I. Yet, strict liability still applied. A more modern extension of Paradigm UA, ultra-hazardous activity, was Caporali v. C.W. Blakesley & Sons, Inc. 22 The Plaintiff 21 19-21-2 AC 465, HL, 22-175-A.2-D561, Con 1961.
CH1 strict liability 13 owned two cement block buildings in New Haven where he had for many years conducted a tile contracting business. In the late 1960s, the defendant began construction of a part of the freeway that is now I-95. The early stages of construction entailed the use of heavy earth-moving machinery and pile drivers, but none of this activity had any observable effect on the buildings prior to October 1958. At that time, the buildings were in a good state of repair, without noticeable cracks in floors, walls, or ceilings, as were also the display tile bathroom and another bathroom. For four months the defendant drove approximately 400 piles for the foundations of a large concrete retaining wall and a bridge across from the plaintiff's buildings and approximately 75 feet away. These piles were made of fluted steel, 60 to 70 feet in length, and were driven by steam hammers capable of delivering from 7,250 to 15,000 foot-pounds of energy. The hammers operated approximately six hours a day every day except Sundays during the whole four-month period. Commencing in October 1958, the plaintiff's buildings shook and vibrated while the pile driving was going on, numerous cracks opened in the walls, floors, and ceilings, the tile bathrooms were damaged, and water pipes were broken. After the defendant ceased driving piles in January 1959 no further cracks appeared. There was no evidence of any activity, other than that of the defendant, which could have accounted for the damage. Both the trial court and the Connecticut Supreme Court held that this was a proper case for strict liability. The risk that remains after everyone uses reasonable precaution is often called unavoidable accident. Strictly speaking, it may not be unavoidable, but it is unavoidable at reasonable cost. A large amount of unavoidable accident existed in this case. It may have been possible to dig footings for the piles and then to slide them in, but the defendant may have decided that it would be cheaper just to pay the damages. The defendant did not willingly offer these damages, however, but made the plaintiff sue for them. How should we think about a risk of unavoidable accident that is large enough to justify strict liability? Unavoidable accident is cost that comes from the actor's activity, but which under the negligence rule the actor does not bear, instead accident victims bear it. How concerned are we that the cost is so large that the defendant may be engaging in the activity, or too much in the activity, simply because under the negligence rule victims would bear a large part of the cost? Logically, there are three different angles on this question. First, is the activity valuable enough to society so that it is reasonable to expect victims to pay a price for it? This question will probably depend on whether the activity is central and important, as 14 strict liability CH1 with activities from which most people benefit, or, is the activity instead a marginal activity that benefits mainly the defendant and very few others? As a related point, even if the activity serves important and widely shared purposes, are there safer substitutes that might be chosen if the defendant faced liability for unavoidable accident? The latter circumstance cuts in favor of strict liability even when the activity serves many people. Second, does unavoidable accident serve any positive purpose when the risk of it is left with the victims, most importantly to encourage them to use their precaution against the activity? A legal regime that made steam locomotives strictly liable for fire would have reduced the incentive of neighboring farmers to use precaution by creating a buffer between their crops and the tracks 23 third, 
is this the type of activity that focuses possibly inevitable or at least extremely costly losses on just a few members of the community? If so, does it seem just that the victims should be appropriated in this way even if society more generally benefits from the activity? In the Caporali piledriving case, all three of these considerations weighed in favor of strict liability. First, safer substitutes for pile driving existed, for instance, excavating the footings for the piles. Point 24 The evidence strongly suggested that the defendant knew that the plaintiff's tile business was highly vulnerable to vibrations because its employees took baseline photos of the other businesses in the neighborhood, but totally neglected the plaintiff's tile showrooms presumably because they could foresee what was about to happen to them. Did the pile driving have to occur so close to the plaintiff's especially vulnerable building? Could the piles be dug in part way? Strict liability, much more than the negligence rule, induces the actor to consider all these substitutions and to choose safety when it is cost-effective in the broadest sense. Second, if we were to leave the damages inevitably caused by pile driving with the Caporali plaintiff, would that allocation of cost induce 23 theoretically, comparative negligence could be applied to strict liability, but that choice still externalizes costs of the activity from the injurer and puts them on the victims. For the set of activities falling within paradigm UA, ultra-hazardous activity, and ATI, accidental trespassery invasion, opportunities for victim precaution are usually small or non-existent, which has probably been important in the evolution of these paradigms. 24 C. Thomas Borg and Eric Ulvas, Alternative Foundation Techniques in Urban Environment, A Study of European Piling Techniques and Methods for Retaining Structures, Chalmers University of Technology, Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, No. 201291, 2012. CH1 Strict Liability 15 Better Victim Precaution? The answer to this question seems a clear no, because there is virtually nothing you can do to protect tiles and buildings from heavy vibrations caused by construction equipment. Earthquakes are different because in earthquake-prone areas architects can design earthquake-resistant buildings. It makes much less economic sense to design and construct a costly building that resists nearby pile driving that may or may not happen. Finally, Although the future I-95 and its path through Connecticut was valuable to many, it would be an unjust appropriation to make the plaintiff bear so much of the cost of this public project. The restatement, first, of torts stated that the test of strict liability was whether the activity necessarily involves a risk of serious harm, not just any harm. Point 25 The restatement, third, has altered this formulation so that any substantial risk, whether composed of a few serious harms to a few people or of many trivial harms to many people, can create strict liability. Point 26 The restatement, first, seems more faithful to the common law pattern of strict liability in tort, which often corresponds to wrongful and substantial appropriations of private property. Sullivan v. Dunham, the case in which the plaintiff's deceased was struck by a blasted tree, was more distinctively part of paradigm UA ultra-hazardous activity, than Caporali because the latter case retained some of the idea of trespass onto the plaintiff's property, though by invading waves instead of matter. In any event, 
Sullivan was quite different from Rylands v. Fletcher because the plaintiff was on a public highway which Justice Blackburn had said was a special place for the negligence rule and she was injured in her person and not by the invasion of her property. The case is otherwise like Caporali and Rylands v. Fletcher. In all three cases substitute technologies were available and might not have been chosen under the negligence rule simply because that rule externalizes the cost of unavoidable accident. The Sullivan defendant might have dug the tree partly out and then pulled the rest of it out with a team of horses, which would have been more costly to the defendant but safer for the plaintiff's decedent. In all three cases, no precaution purpose would be served by leaving unavoidable accident on the victims, because none of them possessed any opportunity to use precaution. One wonders about the Rylands plaintiff, whether he might have warned the defendants of where they were digging their reservoir, but the logical parties for him to have warned were the defendants' contractors, who already knew about the old and dangerous mine shafts. Finally, in all three cases the actual 25C restatement, first, of Torts 520, 1938. 26 series statement, third, of torts, physics, and emote. Harm 20, 2010, comment 16 Guarani's strict liability ch1 harm suffered was great, the flooding of a coal mine in Rylands, the severe damage to the buildings and tile inventories in Caporali, and the death in Sullivan. The pattern of these three strict liability cases is the pattern of many other strict liability cases. Point 27 In the modern era, we often see paradigm ATI combined with paradigm UA, ultra hazardous activity, which creates a stronger case for strict liability. One noteworthy case is Coos v. Roth 28, where the defendant was held strictly liable when his intentionally set fire that he used to burn off the stubble of his grass seed field escaped to his neighbor's field. The defendant had used every conceivable precaution, so negligent liability was not a possibility. The court stressed expert testimony that one in eight of these fires escape, even after all reasonable precaution is used, which was strong evidence of a large risk of unavoidable accident. The weakness of the case was that this method of dealing with grass seed fields was then customary in Oregon, though not in the U.S. more generally. In addition, Fire is not the most substantial thing that can cross a property line, though it is surely one of the most dangerous. Nevertheless, strict liability for invading fire is now rare, though English courts in the Middle Ages created strict liability for it under a precursor to Rylands v. Fletcher called the Ignisuus, Latin for his fire, doctrine. It was probably not cited by Blackburn because by the time of Rylands v. Fletcher there was no longer much strict liability in England for accidental escaping fire. Coos v. Roth was a revival of the Ignisuus doctrine, but under narrow circumstances, especially, the large probability of escape of this field fire even after everyone used reasonable care. A similar case was Bunyak v. Yancey 29 where the defendant's dairy operations each day generated 14,000 pounds of liquefied cow manure. In 1970 Yancey built a large lagoon to hold the liquefied manure. In 1978 Yancey's neighbors, the Bunyaks, set out to go fishing at a pond on their property, but discovered that the pond was covered with a substance that appeared to have originated in Yancey's lagoon. Further investigation confirmed the Bunyak's suspicion that the lagoon had overflowed into several ponds on their property. The 27C, for instance, Smith v. Lockheed Propulsion Co., 
56 calories RPTR 128, CT App 1967, defendants strictly liable for damage caused to plaintiffs well from vibrations created by defendants test of moon rocket, Raynham Chemical Works, Limited v Belvedere Fish Guanoco, 1921-2AC465, HL, defendants factory for producing highly explosive war munitions blew up, damaging plaintiffs adjoining property. 28652P.2D1255, or 1982. 29438SO. 2D891, FLA App 1983. CH1 Strict Liability 17, Florida Court of Appeals found that this case was a proper application of Rylands v. Fletcher. A third hybrid case where Paradigm UA overlaps Paradigm ATI is McGregor v. Barton Sand and Gravel. In 30 the plaintiffs brought a lawsuit arising out of spillage and sliding of water and debris onto plaintiff's property from artificial ponds located on the defendant's property and used in connection with their gravel mining operations. The defendants bought the gravel quarry site in 1972 and incorporated defendant Barton Sand and Gravel, Inc., to conduct business operations. At the time of the purchase, there was one naturally fed pond on the site, which defendants supplemented with two artificial ponds for use in cleaning gravel. Subsequently, the defendants sold the corporation and leased the site to G.D. Dennis & Sons, Incorporated. Dennis encountered financial difficulties, which resulted in the defendants' repossession of the business and the site in the spring of 1979. While in possession of the property, Dennis had constructed four more ponds by diverting the natural stream. In November 1977, the plaintiffs purchased their property, which was located approximately 50 feet below and to the south of the ponds on defendant's property. The spillage problems were apparent from the inception of plaintiff's possession and were continuing at the time of trial in 1981. The plaintiffs promptly and repeatedly called the problems to Dennis's and, later, to defendant's attention and demanded that corrective measures be taken. Dennis and the defendants undertook some action aimed at remedying the condition, and they promised plaintiffs that there would be further efforts. Those efforts were largely aborted, however, by Dennis's financial problems, weather conditions, and other factors, including the defendants' dilatoriness or unsustained attention. The plaintiffs and the defendants hired separate specialists to attempt to resolve the problem. The specialists' advice was conflicting, Although they eventually agreed that digging trenches to divert water would be of some benefit, they apparently did not agree where the trenches should be located, and no trenches were installed. Throughout the relevant period, the plaintiffs continued to sustain serious property damage and continued to inform the defendants, through engineering reports and other means, that there was a danger of ongoing and new problems, including landslides, if the conditions were not remedied. Ultimately, the plaintiffs brought this lawsuit. 3660P.2D175, or App 1983. 18 Strict Liability CH1, the trial court submitted only the plaintiffs' trespass and ultra-hazardous activity counts to the jury, which returned a verdict for the plaintiffs upon which the trial court entered judgment. The defendants appealed to the Oregon Court of Appeals, inter alia, on the ground of insufficiency of the evidence. It affirmed the strict liability judgment. Paradigm ATI has diminished over the years, 
and now it is mainly visible as backup support for otherwise close paradigm UA cases. As a final point in this section on ultra-hazardous activities, strict liability only applies to defendants who have created new social risk, not those who have merely failed to reduce it, however negligently. In Splendorio v. Bilray Demolition Co. 31 the defendant had a contract to find asbestos in public housing buildings and to eliminate it. Nevertheless, the defendant failed to find some of the asbestos, and the buildings were demolished, which caused the asbestos to spread throughout a neighborhood and reduce the value of the plaintiff's houses in that neighborhood. They sued the defendant for strict liability arguing that asbestos abatement was an ultra-hazardous activity. Like the cases just mentioned, this case could also be regarded as falling within paradigm ATI, accidental trespassery invasion. The court nonetheless denied the plaintiffs their legal theory because it said applying strict liability to asbestos abatement would be counterproductive because it would discourage the practice, which is socially beneficial. We want people to consider whether they are doing too much blasting because blasting adds risk to the system. We do not want people to consider whether they are doing too much asbestos abatement because asbestos abatement subtracts risk from the system, even though asbestos abatement is very dangerous. Splendorio falls within paradigm NLPA, neither strict liability paradigm applies. 7. Paradigm CU, Common Usage The most important reason for the absence of strict liability is described by paradigm CU, Common Usage. This theme is in tension with the original Rylands decision because the small kind of reservoir that failed in that case was certainly very common in England at the time of the decision. In any event, the early common usage cases developed in England after Rylands v. Fletcher when the conception of strict liability was still limited to paradigm ATI. The idea of common usage began in England as the notion of legislative approval of the activity in question and preceded Rylands v. 31682A.2D461, RI1996. CH1 Strict Liability 19 Fletcher. In Vaughan v. Tapvale re 32 decided 10 years before Rylands, the English Parliament had passed a special act incorporating the railroad and authorizing it to haul passengers and freight with steam locomotives. On the day in question, while passing the plaintiff's property, the defendant's locomotive started the plaintiff's woods on fire. Although the plaintiff introduced evidence that many fires had started next to the defendant's line after its construction, and none had occurred before, he introduced no evidence of the defendant's negligence. The defendant was apparently operating its locomotive in the safest way possible, and it was the best available design. The English courts refused to order strict liability. They stressed that Parliament had approved the defendant's activity when it passed the Special Authorizing Act, an idea that was the forerunner to common usage. When Rylands was decided ten years after Vaughan the justices made no mention of the earlier railroad case, which was odd because Rylands seemed to fit into the same factual orbit as the earlier case. Like the Rylands defendant, the Taft Vale Re had collected dangerous material, hot coals and sparks, that would likely do mischief if they should escape. Yet, strict liability existed in Rylands but not in Vaughan. That puzzle had been partly explained by the Vaughan decision's stress of legislative approval of the steam railroad there involved, legislative approval that didn't exist for the Rylands Reservoir. Also, in 1868, 
the same year the House of Lords decided Rylands, a lower English appellate court held that a railroad was strictly liable for escaping sparks when the Parliament had authorized the company to operate trains only with a stationary steam engine, which pulled the cars with cables, a la San Francisco cable cars, and not with a steam locomotive, which endangered a much wider territory and which the defendant had adopted only after Parliament had approved its original, safer business plan. That case, Jones v. Festiniagri 33 seemed to load unauthorized steam railroads into Paradigm ATI together with the Rylands Bursting Reservoir, leaving the authorized steam railroad in some new no-liability paradigm, parliamentary approval, which later evolved to be Paradigm CU, common usage. The second idea of common usage dash which again prevents strict liability from applying comes from Rylands v. Fletcher itself. When that case got to the House of Lords, which was the last appeal, the Lords approved the Exchequer Chamber's strict liability result, but one of the law lords said he was comfortable with strict liability only 32-157 ENG Republic 1351, EXCHCH 1860, Rev G, 157 ENG Republic 667, EXCH 1858. 33 LR 3 QB 733, 1868. 20 Strict Liability CH1 Because the failed reservoir was a non-natural use of land, whatever that might mean. 34 Since then the common law of the UK and the US have evolved so that they typically arrive at the same results in wide range of cases, but what is called common usage in the US is denominated natural use in the UK. Let's return to what seem to be the policy objectives of strict liability. First, it makes people think hard about whether they want to do the activity and how much of it they want to do, because strict liability loads all the costs onto the actor, while the alternative negligence rule leaves some of the cost on victims in the form of injuries that the actor's use of reasonable care would not have prevented. Thus, if strict liability had been the liability rule in Von V. Taft-Bailey, the landowner whose woods were burned would have recovered damages for his loss. Under the rule of negligence, which the court applied to the case, some of the cost of railroading was loaded onto the victims. The main purpose of this externalization was probably to get potential victims, such as the plaintiff, to employ their own useful precaution. The Vaughn evidence indicated plaintiff had failed to clean the underbrush out of his woods next to the tracks, which created a dangerous condition, and he evidently needed a greater incentive to do so. As noted at the beginning, negligence liability creates this incentive for victim precaution even without the contributory negligence defense because victims expect to bear the consequences of their own carelessness whenever they cannot prove negligence against the railroad or other 34 Lord Cairns seemed to suggest that the problem in Rylands was that the defendants used horse-drawn wagon to bring the water to fill their reservoir and failed to rely on groundwater to fill it up. Generations were left to wonder what was non-natural about trespassing cattle that pooped on the plaintiff's property, one of Blackburn's principal examples of or strict liability. Another non-natural use of land was presumably maintaining a traditional cesspit whose contents must have largely arisen on the land. See Tenant v. Goldwyn, 91 ENG Republic 314, KB 1705. Here is the key passage from Lord Cairns's speech in Rylands v. Fletcher, on the other hand if the defendants, 
not stopping at the natural use of their clothes, had desired to use it for any purpose which I may term a non-natural use, for the purpose of introducing into the clothes that which in its natural condition was not in or upon it, for the purpose of introducing water either above or below ground in quantities and in a manner not the result of any work or operation on or under the land dash. And if in consequence of their doing so, or in consequence of any imperfection in the mode of their doing so, the water came to escape and to pass off into the clothes of the plaintiff, then it appears to me that that which the defendants were doing they were doing at their own peril, and, if in the course of their doing it, the evil arose to which I have referred, the evil, namely, of the escape of the water and its passing away to the clothes of the plaintiff and injuring the plaintiff, then for the consequence of that, in my opinion, the defendants would be liable. CH1 Strict Liability 21 Defendant A common reason for not being able to prove negligence is because it didn't exist. Second, strict liability makes actors focus hard on avoiding the types of lapses that juries applying negligence law often forgive. No one is a perfect precaution taker, and if the law normally required us to act in this way, we could become enslaved to safety to the detriment of our other life objectives. Think of the surgeon who could never make a mistake without facing liability. As we will see, under the negligence rule that applies to medical procedures juries often forgive mistakes and do so with the approval of judges. Nevertheless, with extremely dangerous activities, such as blasting, it is good that actors focus intensely on preventing all precaution lapses. Again, Juries usually cannot forgive mistakes made by actors engaging in strictly liable activities because juries are typically not involved in the trials of these cases. Finally, strict liability protects us from invasions of our real property. This seems to be an important policy goal, but it is so simple not much can be said about it. The most obvious applications of this policy exist in cases in which the invasion is very dangerous or obnoxious, as with invading chlorine gas. All this suggests that common usages should be activities that have passed some test of social acceptability, are probably activities in which both actors and victims possess useful precaution opportunities, and are activities that do not cause substantial invasions of real property. In any event, we can observe a life cycle for new and apparently dangerous activities. When dangerous activities are uncommon, they fall under the strict liability principle, but after they become more common, they often graduate to the negligence rule. It is as if the law establishes an acceptability test. If a new activity can economically survive strict liability and become common, it graduates to the negligence rule. 35 This progression makes good sense because as an activity stops being experimental, typically victims will have evolved ways to protect themselves from it. At the beginning of the auto age, pedestrians had to learn to notice a car was coming down the 35C William M. Lons and Richard A. Posner, the economic structure of tort law 107116, 1987. See also Gil v. Swan, 19 Johns. 381, n.y.1822, experimental balloon that attracted crowd yielded strict liability for damage, Musgrove v. Pandelis. 1919 2KB43, CA, FG, 1919 1KB314, novel automobile that burned plaintiff's property yielded strict liability, Coxhill v. Forward, 
QBD March 19, 1986, Unpub. Novel automobile fuel system that burned plaintiff's property yielded strict liability. But C. Von V. Taft Bale Re, 157 ENG Republic 1351, EXCHCH 1860, Rev. G, 157 ENG Republic 667, EXCH 1858, conventional railroad that burned plaintiff's property failed to yield strict liability. 22 Strict Liability CH1 Road They Wanted to Cross Applying strict liability would disincentivize valuable victim behavior, which seems to have been obvious to the courts even at the beginning of the auto age. In Losey v. Buchanan 36 the plaintiffs brought this action to recover damages resulting from the explosion of the defendant's steam boiler which was being used at their paper factory in upstate New York. The boiler exploded in early 1864, but even by that time steam boilers were common. That was the basis for the court's conclusion that strict liability did not apply. Boiler technology was still new and dangerous, and there was probably quite a bit of unavoidable accident that resulted from it. In this case, there was also an accidental trespassery invasion because the shrapnel flew across the property line and damaged the plaintiff's buildings and the property inside them. Still, the court held that steam boiler technology had become so common that it fell under a kind of economy of equal transgression in which the unavoidable risks from common activities are passed around society because it is too costly to create a lawsuit every time these activities miscarry without negligence. 37 The court's hope was that it would work out in the wash, which could seem unlikely since some members of society are much more active in their use of dangerous technology than others. Nevertheless, the risk impositions might work out more evenly if we think that the Losi defendants were really acting on behalf of all those who used paper. Once steam technology had become common in the paper industry, it was really the paper users who were imposing the risk on the plaintiffs. The plaintiffs in turn seem to have been representing a different group of consumers who nevertheless all used paper, too. The prior view of common usage seems to be the one accepted by the courts. For instance, for trains to be a common usage it is not necessary that railroads be owned by most or even many people. Instead, the concept of common usage is whether the activity is one that most people do or have done for them. 38 Moreover, to the extent anyone can tell, the standard appears to be national and not local. 39 NY 476, 1873 37 The court's public policy theory was an anticipation of George Fletcher's theory in fairness and utility in tort law, etc., and may have even been the inspiration for it. Quote Losey language. 38 Coos v. Roth, 652p.2d1255-1265, or 1982, field burning not a matter of common usage. 39 Field burning is not common is the U.S., though it was common in the area in which a fire got out of control. CH1 Strict Liability 23.8 Paradigm Mu, Mutual Use, the mutual use limitation on strict liability arose soon after Rylands v. Fletcher was decided. In Carstairs v. Taylor 40 the plaintiff sued for the destruction of his rice. The plaintiffs leased from the defendant the ground floor of a warehouse in Liverpool for storing rice. 
the defendant himself occupied the upper floor where he stored cotton. The water from the roof was collected in gutters, which terminated in a wooden box resting on the wall, and partly projecting over it on the inside. From there the water was discharged by a pipe into the drain. The gutters and box were examined from time to time by a person employed by the defendant, and they had been, in fact, examined and found secure on the 18th of April, but between that day and the 22nd a rat gnawed a hole in that part of the box which projected on the inside of the wall, on the latter day a heavy storm occurred, and the collected rainwater passed through the hole into the upper floor of the warehouse, and from there reached the ground floor and injured the plaintiff's rice. The gutters and box were constructed in the mode ordinarily used in Liverpool. The plaintiff's fifth count was for strict liability under Rylands v. Fletcher. The trial court dismissed the case because it found no evidence of negligence and held that strict liability did not apply. The Court of Exchequer affirmed on both grounds. That court held that Rylands v. Fletcher did not apply because the rain guttering system was designed to operate for the plaintiffs as well as the defendant's benefit. It was a mutual use. The first purpose of strict liability is to get the actor to consider whether to do the activity at all and at what level. The logic of paradigm mu is that if the plaintiff is sharing the benefits from the activity, he is not an appropriate person to suggest this inquiry. Paradigm mu is sometimes extended to immunize public activities from strict liability. In Albig v Municipal Authority 41 the defendant's public dam leaked and flooded the plaintiff's basement. The court stressed that the plaintiff was connected to the municipal water system of which the dam was a part and benefited from the dam. Albig was distinct because other cases have held that when the public system inevitably failed 42 or unreasonably failed 43 the 40 LR6 EX217, 1871, 41502A.2D658, PA Super 1985, 42C Lubin v Iowa City, 131N.W.2D765, Iowa 1964, defendant strictly liable for leaving water mains underground for 80 years without inspection and with expectation that they would burst. 24 Strict liability CH1 plaintiff can bring an action for inverse condemnation and in that way recover for losses. In these inverse condemnation cases, the whole public gains a benefit from the public activity, or inactivity, so it seems unfair to make one citizen bear the cost. It is like taking that citizen's property for a public project and not paying the citizen for his or her contributed resources. The mutual use paradigm is like two other no liability paradigms CU, common usage, and PPR, plaintiff participated in risk, dash and often overlaps them. Being connected to the same rain guttering system as the defendant and then suing him for its failure is not so different from having one's woods burned by the defendant's properly managed locomotive and then using the same railroad line to ship one's crops. In both cases, the plaintiff is not the most appropriate purpose to challenge whether the activity should exist, though he may be a quite proper person to ask whether the activity was conducted negligently. Similarly, Participating in a risky activity usually entails benefits to the participator, often wages, so such a person is also a dubious challenger of the activity's worth. 9 Paradigm VMS, Vis Major and Sabotage, 
Nichols v. Marsland 44 followed closely on the heels of Rylands v. Fletcher and was its earliest significant counter-precedent because it was so factually like Rylands but resulted in no liability. The plaintiff sued as the surveyor for the county of Chester for the destruction of four county bridges from water that overflowed the defendant's artificial pools during a large storm. His first count was for negligence, and his second count was under the doctrine of Rylands v. Fletcher. The case was tried before Coburn, C.J., at the Chester Summer Assizes in 1874. The plaintiff's witnesses gave evidence that the defendant occupied a mansion house and grounds at Hanbury, in the county of Chester. A natural stream called Bagbrook, which rose in higher lands, ran through the defendant's grounds, and after leaving them flowed under the four county bridges in question. After entering the defendant's grounds the stream was diverted and dammed up by 43 Bunch v. Coachella Valley Water District, 935 P.2D 796, Cal 1997, defendant public agency in its flood control improvements made changes in flood control conduits that increased flooding to plaintiff apartment dwellers in tropical storm Dolores, court held that if improvements were reasonable plaintiffs could not bring case for inverse condemnation, McMahons of Santa Monica v. City of Santa Monica, 194. Cal.RPTR 582, CTF 1983, trial court found that city was liable for damages from inverse condemnation for planning, designing, and deliberately not maintaining water main that failed and flooded plaintiff, and appeals court affirmed 44 LR 10 EXCH 255, 1875, AFD, 2 EXD 1, CA 1876. CH1 strict liability 25 An artificial embankment into a pool of about 3 acres called the upper pool, from which it escaped over a weir in the embankment, and was again similarly dammed up by an artificial embankment into the middle pool, which was between 1 and 2 acres in area. Escaping over a dam or weir in the embankment, it was again dammed up into the lower pool, which was between 8 and 9 acres in area, and from which the stream escaped into its natural and original course. One night in June of 1872 there was a heavy rainstorm, which caused the pools to overflow and give way. Engineers and other witnesses testified that the dam in the upper pool was far too small for a pool of that size, and that the plaintiff's bridges were washed out because of a lack of means for carrying off excess water. The jury said that they thought the defendant was not negligent because the rainstorm amounted to an act of God or vis major. The trial judge, however, did not think that the rainstorm was heavy enough or unlikely enough to be a true act of God, and entered judgment for the plaintiff on the county's negligence theory. The Court of Exchequer, the next up, found that the jury should not be reversed on its conclusion that the rainstorm was so severe to be an act of God and also held that Rylands v. Fletcher did not apply because those defendants poured water into the plaintiff's mine even though unknowingly, whereas this defendant was the hapless victim of an act of God. On the last appeal, the English Court of Appeal said that it was a true act of God that destroyed the bridges, which was also in that court's view a bar to strict liability because Blackburn had mentioned this major in his true rule 45 nevertheless, since the Nichols court placed its ratio dissidenti on the extraordinary and overwhelming nature of the storm, it seems proper to respect that reason and to see Nichols at least partly a case of this major.
the vis major justification for no strict liability is like sabotage in that both intervention are beyond the defendant's control, and both case the activity to fail. In Rickards v Lothian 46 the defendant was the owner of a commercial building in Melbourne, Australia, and the plaintiff was one of his tenants. One night a trespasser entered the building, clogged the sink and its drains in the fourth floor restroom, turned the water on, and left. Water accumulated and leaked into the plaintiff's rooms, damaging his inventory of school books. Based on the jury's answers to special interrogatories, factual questions asked of the 45461913 AC 263, PC Austral, 26 strict liability CH1 jury by the judge, the trial judge entered judgment for the plaintiff for £156, the amount of the damages found by the jury. The defendant ultimately appealed to the Privy Council, the highest court of appeal for claims arising from British Commonwealth countries. The Privy Council held that the accident did not fall under Rylands v Fletcher. It stressed that the failure was of an ordinary water system, Paradigm CU, that the system normally operated for the plaintiff's benefit as well as the defendant's, Paradigm Mu, and finally that the accident happened because of a trespasser's sabotage, Paradigm VMS. In Pecan Shop of Springfield, Missouri, Inc. v Tri-State Motor Transit Co. 47 The owner of land damaged when a tractor-trailer unit carrying dynamite exploded brought suit against the motor carrier to recover for damages. The defendant Tri-State Motor Transit Co. was a motor carrier licensed by the state of Missouri and the U.S. Department of Transportation. On September 14, 1970, the union employees of Tri-State went on strike. In the early morning hours of September 30th, 1970, a tractor-trailer unit, owned by Tri-State and driven by its non-striking employee, John A. Galt, was transporting a load of dynamite, for shipper DuPont Company, from Joplin, Missouri, to a mining site at Boss, Missouri. As the unit was traveling on Interstate Highway 44 in Greene County, Missouri, it approached an overpass on which stood Bobby Schuler, one of the striking employees. Using a 3030 rifle, Schuler fired three shots at the unit, thereby causing a tremendous explosion which resulted in the death of Galt and the destruction of the unit. The explosion also caused heavy damage to nearby improved land owned by the plaintiff Pecan Shop of Springfield, Missouri, Inc., on which it conducted a restaurant and service station business. The plaintiff brought this action for damages against Tri-State and the Union. Prior to the trial plaintiff settled its claim against the union. The amount of that settlement did not fully compensate the plaintiff for its damages, and the case proceeded to trial against the defendant Tri-State. The jury returned a verdict in favor of the defendant. The plaintiff appealed to the Missouri Court of Appeals on the ground that the trial court erred in failing to direct a verdict for plaintiff on the issue of liability. It argued that the doctrine of strict liability was applicable to the admitted facts and that the sole province of the jury was to determine the extent of the plaintiff's uncompensated damages and to render the appropriate award. 47573S.W.2D431, MO App 1978. CH1 Strict Liability 27 The defendant argued that the trial court did not err in the manner claimed because the theory of strict liability does not apply to a common carrier engaged in transporting explosives, and further, 
that the cause of the explosion was the intervening criminal act of convicted murderer Bobby Schuler. The court agreed with both points. 10 Paradigm PPR, plaintiff participated in risk, in the modern era, a lawsuit based on strict liability in tort questions whether the defendant should have done his activity at all or so much of it that resulted in the plaintiff's injury. Hence, if the plaintiff was a co-participant in the activity, it runs strongly against liability. In the strongest cases of no liability the plaintiff will have benefited financially from the conduct of the activity alleged to be ultra-hazardous. In Central Trust and Savings Bank v. Toppert 48 the plaintiff bank sued a dead worker's employer for the worker's death in a blasting operation. In its count for absolute liability, the plaintiff alleged that the defendants owned or operated a certain rock quarry, and that in furtherance of the operations of the quarry L.D. Davis Construction Company, Inc., was hired to work with Charles Toppert in setting dynamite and caps in certain boreholes and exploding same. The plaintiff's decedent, as an employee of L.D. Davis Construction Company, Inc., was allegedly in the process of doing that when on May 18, 1984, at about 5.45 p.m. at said Rock River Stone Quarry, while inserting a stick of dynamite with a cap into the 13th borehole, he was killed from a premature explosion. The plaintiff further alleged in that count that Charles Toppert or someone under the control of Charles Toppert had inserted about 10 sticks of dynamite into that same borehole immediately prior to the plaintiff's decedent's insertion of the capped dynamite. The plaintiff further alleged that the workplace was inherently dangerous in certain specified respects, that special precautions were not taken for the safety of the plaintiff's decedent such as certain specified examples, and T had as a result of said inherent danger, defendants, are absolutely liable to plaintiff for the pecuniary injuries suffered to the heirs of Lee D. Davis as a result of said death. The court found that the plaintiff could not sue for strict liability because the decedent was a co-participant in the blasting. Again, given that strict liability is about challenging whether an activity should have taken place, it seems out of place for someone who has benefited from the activity to sue for its consequences. 48554N.E.2D820-ILAP1990 28 Strict Liability CH111 Paradigma, unforeseeable harm, when the harm that came from the activity was not reasonably foreseeable ahead of time, strict liability does not apply. The reason is that unforeseeable harm cannot affect precaution or activity level decisions. In Cambridge Water Co. v. Eastern Counties Leather P.L.C. 49 the plaintiff sued for the contamination of its water well. The principal defendant was an old established leather manufacturer that used a chemical solvent known as perchloroethene, PCE, in the process of degreasing pelts at its tanning works in Sauston, not to be confused with Sauston Mill, mentioned below. Over the years there were regular spillages of relatively small amounts of the solvent onto the concrete floor of the tannery. The total spillage was at least 1,000 gallons. The spilled solvent, which was not readily soluble in water, seeped through the tannery floor into the soil below until it reached an impermeable strait of 50 meters below the surface from where it percolated along a plume at the rate of about 8 meters a day until it reached the strata from which the plaintiffs extracted water for domestic use via a well which the English call a borehole. 
The distance between the plaintiff's well and the defendant's tannery was 173 miles and time taken for the solvent to seep from the tannery to the well was about nine months. The plaintiffs brought an action against the defendants claiming damages in negligence and nuisance and under the rule in Rylands v. Fletcher for contamination of the water extracted from their well. The source of the contamination was not disputed. The trial judge dismissed the plaintiff's claim on the grounds that the actions in negligence and nuisance failed because the defendants could not reasonably have foreseen, before 1976, after the pollution had already occurred, that repeated spillages of small quantities of solvent would enter the underground strata or that, having done so, detectable quantities would be found down aquifer and thereby lead to any environmental hazard in water. The trial judge also ruled that the plaintiff's Rylands v. Fletcher claim failed because the use of the solvent in the defendant's tanning business, under the circumstances, constituted a natural use, which is the English idea of common usage. On appeal by the plaintiffs, the Court of Appeal held that the defendants were strictly liable for the contamination of the water 49-1994-2 AC 264, HL 1993. CH1 strict liability 29 percolating under the plaintiff's land and awarded damages of over £1 million. The defendants appealed to the House of Lords. The law lords held for the defendants. They rejected the idea that using PCE was a natural use of land, or common usage, but said that the damage was unforeseeable before the accident and was unrecoverable for that reason. This is a no liability case falling within paradigm uh, unforeseeable harm. A similar but earlier U.S. case was Madsen v. East Jordan Irrigation Co. 50. The plaintiff was the owner of the Madsen Mink Farm, which was 100 yards from the defendant's irrigation canal. The defendant used explosives in performing repairs on the canal, and the resulting vibrations and noises caused 108 of the plaintiff's mother minks to kill 230 of their kittens. Each kitten was worth $25. The plaintiff's complaint alleged that when minks were caring for their offspring they were highly excitable and that when they were disturbed they would become terrified and would kill their young. The trial court sustained the defendant's demurrer to the complaint. The plaintiff appealed. The appeals court held that the plaintiff's harm from noise was unforeseeable to the defendant before the event. The court said that if the minks had died from thrown debris, as in Sullivan v. Dunham, the blasted tree case, or from concussion, as in Caporali, the pile driver case, the plaintiff would have recovered. Many activities cause loud noises and do not fall under strict liability for that reason. The Madsen case fell under paradigm A, unforeseeable harm, and paradigm HNR, harm from non-ultra-hazardous risk, still to be discussed. In New Meadows Holding Covey Washington Water Power Co. 51 the plaintiff Mark Brown, while attempting to light an oil stove, unwittingly ignited natural gas that was leaking from a damaged gas line several blocks away. An independent contractor for Pacific Northwest Bell had caused the leak seven years earlier. While laying cable some distance from the plaintiff's house the independent contractor had damaged a two-inch gas transmission line owned by the defendant Washington Water Power Company. The natural gas, unable to permeate the frozen ground, had traveled laterally and finally entered the drain field that serviced Brown's residence. As already mentioned, the whole process took seven years. The subsequent explosion seriously injured Brown and destroyed the house he rented from the other plaintiff, 
New Meadows Holding Company. 5125P.2D794, Utah1942. 51, New Meadows Holding Colorado v. Washington Water Power Co., 687P.2D212, Washington1984. 30 Strict Liability CH1, Brown and New Meadows sued Washington Water Power Colorado alleging that the power company, which owned the gas transmission pipe, was strictly liable. The court rejected strict liability. The cases could fit into several no-liability paradigms, including CU, common usage, and perhaps VMS, vis major and sabotage, but the latter paradigm is weak for this case because the telephone company's sabotage of the gas pipe was not intentional as is usually required by that paradigm. The strongest paradigm for no liability is a, unforeseeable harm, because it seems as though the defendant gas company had no way of seeing that its pipe had been breached and created a danger. 12 Paradigm HNR, Harm from Non-Ultra-Hazardous Risk Another no-liability paradigm exists for accidents that may in some sense be caused by an ultra-hazardous activity but they did not arise from the risk that makes the accident ultra-hazardous. 52 Thus, if the defendant ships an allegedly ultra-hazardous cargo, but the accident happens because the independent contractor's driver failed to yield the right-of-way and collided with the plaintiff, that is clearly not a cause of strict liability. Assuming that the allegedly hazardous cargo had nothing to do with the accident. Point 53 A famous case illustrating this paradigm is in re Chicago flood litigation. Point 54 The plaintiff sued the city of Chicago and its contractor Great Lakes Dredge and Dockco for damages sustained by themselves and by their insureds when Great Lakes breached a tunnel under the Chicago River and flooded much of the loop. An old underground freight tunnel system was located under the central business district of Chicago, commonly known as the Loop and also under the Chicago River, which was adjacent to the Loop. Many buildings in the Loop were connected directly or indirectly to the tunnel system. Before 1959, the tunnels were used to transport freight in the Loop. Since 1959 the city had owned the tunnels and since the 1970s had leased them to public utilities and telecommunication companies to carry their service lines. The tunnels crossed under the Chicago River at different locations, including near the Kinsey Street Bridge. In May 1991, the city entered into a contract with Great Lakes, which provided that Great Lakes would remove and replace wood piling clusters at five Chicago River bridges, including the Kinsey Street Bridge. The Contract 52 Restatement, 2nd, of Torts 519, 2, 1965, provides, this strict liability is limited to the kind of harm, the possibility of which makes the activity abnormally dangerous. 53 Maximin v. Rivera, NOS. Civ 860-1988, Civ 944-88, 1990 WL 533213, VI 1990, no strict liability when truck carrying defendant's asphalt collided with plaintiff. 54680N.E.2D265, IL-1997. CH1 Strict Liability 31 warned Great Lakes not to drive the pilings at any other location than that specified by the city. Because even slight position changes may cause serious damage to various underground structures. The contract further provided that if Great Lakes failed to heed this warning, 
Great Lakes would be liable to repair such damages at its own expense. By September 1991, Great Lakes informed the city that it had fully completed the work. However, Great Lakes had installed the pilings at the Kinsey Street Bridge in a location other than originally designated in the contract. During pile driving at the bridge, Great Lakes caused a breach in the tunnel wall by physically breaking, weakening, or creating excessive pressure on the tunnel wall. A few months later the tunnel breach opened. In a sudden torrent and continuing flow, the Chicago River rushed into the tunnel and, ultimately, into buildings connected to the tunnel. Approximately 200,000 persons were evacuated from numerous loop buildings. The court went to great lengths explaining that vibrations from pile driving were subject to different treatments in different states as to whether they did or did not lead to strict liability. Nevertheless, this analysis was unnecessary because the tunnel breach did not come from vibrations, but from placing the pile driver in the wrong place. The same result could have occurred if Great Lakes was digging the pile footings with a dredge. Hence, the case was obviously distinct from the Caporali case described above, which did fall within UA. This case fell instead within no liability paradigm HNR, harm from non-ultra-hazardous risk. Caporali did not fall within paradigm HNR because the ultra-hazardous risk in that case was strong concussions and vibrations coming from pile driving and that is exactly how the Caporali plaintiff's harm happened. 13 Paradigm NLPA, neither strict liability paradigm applies, this no liability paradigm is added to make doubly clear that an activity not falling within one of the liability paradigms yields no strict liability even though it may not fall within one of the prior no liability paradigms. That is, if an activity did not yield a substantial trespassery invasion and if it also was not an ultra-hazardous activity, the activity falls under the negligence rule regardless of whether it was or was not a common usage, and so forth. In Edwards v. Post Transportation Co. 55 the plaintiff sued the defendant delivery company for delivering sulfuric acid to the wrong tank, which caused poisonous fumes that hurt the plaintiff. At the time 55 279 calories RPTR 231, CT App 1991. 32 Strict Liability CH1 of his injury the plaintiff was an employee of Norris Industries, a manufacturer of zinc-plated cartridge cases. Norris had constructed a waste treatment facility to dispose of certain emulsions from its plating plant. Part of the new facility consisted of two storage tanks, one for sodium bisulfite and one for sulfuric acid. Because of the differing natures of these chemicals, the pipe leading to the sodium bisulfite tank was to be constructed of plastic, while the pipe leading to the sulfuric acid tank was required to be of stainless steel. Through error in construction, the pipes were switched, the plastic pipe being hooked to the sulfuric acid tank and vice versa. When this was noticed it was concluded the easiest remedy would be to change the identity of the tanks. Although this was done, the tanks were inadequately labeled. As a result, the driver for post, when delivering a tank truck of sulfuric acid, pumped the material into the wrong tank, which unfortunately contained a residue of sodium bisulfite and water. A severe and immediate chemical reaction followed which resulted in toxic gas being released from the tank. Edwards, who was working in an adjacent part of the Norris plant, was overcome by the gas and suffered severe injuries. The negligence or other fault of Norris was not in issue.
By virtue of his employment status, Edwards's recourse against Norris was limited to workers' compensation. Since Edwards had no relationship with Post, however, he was free to bring a common law action for personal injuries. This case resulted. The plaintiff asked the trial court to submit his case to the jury on both negligence and strict liability theories. The trial court held that the plaintiff's strict liability theory was not available under the facts here and submitted the plaintiff's case to the jury on the plaintiff's negligence theory only. The jury found the defendant post not guilty of negligence presumably because the pipe labels were so confusing. The trial court then entered judgment on the defense verdict. The appeals court held that this was not a proper case for strict liability. There was no trespassery invasion in the strictest sense because the acid came from a truck on the plaintiff's employer's property, and the plaintiff in any event was not an owner of the property, so the case did not fall within paradigm ATI, accidental trespassery invasion, point 56 moreover, the risk could be totally eliminated by better labeling the two pipes, so the case was also not a part of paradigm UA, ultra-hazardous activity. Unavoidable accident was 56, the court found that sulfuric acid was not a matter of common usage. Arguably, the plaintiff benefited from acid deliveries, because they kept him working, but he certainly did not benefit from this delivery. CH1 strict liability 33 small and not large. Therefore, since neither of the two liability paradigms applied to the case, it fell within no liability paradigm NLPA, neither strict liability paradigm applies. Thus, in order to get this no strict liability result the case need not fall within paradigm CU, common usage, HNR, harm from non-ultra-hazardous risk, PPR, plaintiff participated in risk, or MU, mutual use. It is enough for no strict liability simply that the case didn't fall within one of the two liability paradigms. This adds clarity to the analysis because delivering sulfuric acid is probably not a common usage, or otherwise an activity that creates a normal risk and so forth. Still, the case is not covered by either of the two strict liability paradigms, which is the key point. 14 Conclusion If we judge the matter from the pattern of the cases, the main purpose of strict liability is to focus a defendant's attention on whether he or she should be conducting an activity at all and, if so, how much of the activity the defendant should do. The negligence rule governs almost all accidents, strict liability is exceptional. Nevertheless, as we will see in more detail in subsequent chapters, the negligence rule externalizes a significant portion of an activity's cost from the person who is deciding whether to do it. Victims bear the cost of accidents that reasonable precaution by the activity doer fails to prevent either in the form of non-negligent harm or in the form of additional precautions victims must use because of the activity. The major idea is that when an activity yields large and serious harms that reasonable precaution by actor will not prevent, strict liability should apply. The social cost of strict liability is that it can cause victims to refrain from even cheap precautions they could use to prevent the harms themselves or to mitigate it. Nevertheless, strict liability hardly ever applies to accidents in which victims possess good precaution opportunities except when they have participated in creating the risk when they are barred from recovery by paradigm PPR. In the most obvious cases of strict liability, Unavoidable accident will be absolutely large and opportunities for victim precaution nil. 
although it is difficult to appreciate the point before we examine the negligence breach of duty doctrine, the biggest difference between strict liability and negligence, and the reason U.S. plaintiffs strongly prefer it to negligence, is that it prevents jury forgiveness of negligence. In the UK negligence cases are no longer tried to juries, so perhaps for that reason UK courts often talk about eliminating strict liability because the UK negligence rule already prevents jury forgiveness since UK negligence cases are now tried to judges, who do not forgive negligence. As we will see, US juries are empowered by 34 strict liability CH1 US courts to forgive even obvious negligence. Examples are surgical teams leaving surgical sponges in patients 57 or a pharmacist's dispensing a drug to a patient in multiple times the doctor prescribed dose and thereby killing the patient. 58 Although we can see a trend to give strict liability cases to juries, they are still overwhelmingly tried to judges sitting without juries. Judges are much less forgiving than our juries. The expected liability under strict liability is thus greater than under the negligence rule and strict liability creates correspondingly greater incentives to safety. A good example from the cases we have seen is Raynham, the exploding munitions factory. Given the national importance of the defendant's work, there would have been a good chance that a jury would have forgiven their negligence. From the plaintiff's point of view, strict liability did not possess that problem, and in the end the judges did not forgive the Raynham defendants. 57 C. Tams v. Cots 538.2 D1217, DC App 1985, jury allowed to forgive surgeon and nurses who left laparotomy pad in patient, 58 C. Ohio County Drug Covey Howard, 256 SW705, Kentucky 1923, pharmacist is not insurer of accuracy of his dispensing, and question of his negligence is for jury, overruling, Fleet and Sample v. Hollenkamp, 13b Monday 219, 1852 WL 1716, Kentucky. CH1 Strict Liability 35 Further Reading AJ, FA, 1956. Rylands v. Fletcher. Liability for Personal Injuries. Defense of Novice Actus. The Modern Law Review, 19. 419424. Dingle, A. E., 1982. The Monster Nuisance of All, Landowners, Alkali Manufacturers, and Air Pollution, 182864. The Economic History Review, 35, 4, 529548. DOI 10.2307-259540-6 Hilton, K. N., 2002. Welfare Implications of Costly Litigation Under Strict Liability American Law and Economics Review, 4, 1, 1843 Hilton, K.N., 2010 The Economics of Public Nuisance Law and the New Enforcement Actions Supreme Court Economic Review, 18, 1, 4376 DOI 10.1086-659981-Jones W.K., 1992. Strict Liability for Hazardous Enterprise. Columbia Law Review, 92, 7, 1705-1779. doi 10.2307-112304 for Mies, A.J., 2001.
The Externality of Victim Care. The University of Chicago Law Review, 68, 4-1201234. doi 10.2307-1600479 Murphy, J. 2004. The Merits of Rylands v. Fletcher. Oxford Journal of Legal Studies, 24, 4, 643669. Shavel, S. 1980. Strict Liability versus Negligence. The Journal of Legal Studies, 9, 1, 125. J.H., 2000. The Floodgates of Strict Liability, Bursting Reservoirs and the Adoption of Fletcher v. Rylands in the Gilded Age. The Yale Law Journal, 110, 2, 3333377. DOI 10.2307/797576 Simpson, AWB, 1984. Legal Liability for Bursting Reservoirs: The Historical Context of Rylands v. Fletcher. The Journal of Legal Studies, 13, 2, 209264. Stein, A, 2017. The Domain of Torts. Columbia Law Review, 117. 3535611 Weinrub, EJ, 1983. Toward a Moral Theory of Negligence Law. Law and Philosophy, 2, 1, 3762. Weinrub, EJ, 1988. Legal Formalism on the Imminent Rationality of Law. Yale Law Journal, 97, 6, 36 Strict Liability CH1